Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with Ginny Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with chef, master chef winner, author of six books on Japanese food and regular on Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet, Tim Anderson. Because even in Japan, Japanese people will say, if you start talking about food, and obviously for me, that is the first thing I always talk about, um, and you know what kind of Japanese food I like and stuff like that, somebody will often ask you know do you like natto and that's almost like a little litmus test to see like okay how much do you like japanese food tim holds a unique position as cultural commentator on japanese food culture in britain yet he's an american who grew up in in wisconsin i asked him to take me back to meet his eight-year-old self in midwest america to see if we could find the moment when it all started that's not where i thought uh we'd start but uh, it's as good a place as any. It's at the beginning, basically. It's actually before the beginning if you're, we're talking about Japanese food because it wasn't something that was on my radar at all until I was a teenager, basically. Um, food was simple, Midwestern, frugal, unpretentious cooking, um, sometimes barely cooking, you know, mac and cheese from a box, that kind of thing, scalloped potatoes from a box, um, all kinds of things from boxes and tins, spaghetti sauce from a, from a can. Um, but it was good. It was good. And I, I've always loved food even before I had a, a big, uh, interest in it or passion for it. Um, I, I loved that stuff that I grew up with. You know, we had, uh, bratwurst and, and Danish pastries because that's the sort of, um, people that came over to Wisconsin from Europe and uh, surrounded by those kinds of things and okay. Polish sausage uh, and pizza, of course. Right. Um, all these sort of like really hearty Midwestern dishes that I yeah. loved then and I, I still love. Um, Food from the land as well, though, surely. It's a big farming area, isn't it? It is and it isn't because it's also like it's it's farming and manufacturing. And so you get the two together and you, get, you end up with basically a lot of processed foods, <laughs> which are, you know, I'm not going to pass judgment on those things, and some of them I, I, I still do love, and some of them I've left in the past. Um, but, uh, yeah, just simple, and, and uh, I think above all, kind of cheap and cheerful, that kind of thing. Like When I was growing up, we, we didn't uh, want for anything particularly, but they did when they were younger, um, and so they had that mindset of like always getting... You know the cheaper the store owned brand um making do with with things like that and and really my mom my my dad didn't really cook he did occasionally, but my mom could make delicious food out of nothing special, which I think is that's something I really respect in anybody who can do that. Yeah, definitely. So you grew up around food, knowing kind of your way around a kitchen. But what was the moment where you decided you'd go and study Japanese food history at the Occidental College in LA? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a leap from Bratwurst. <laughs> I first became interested in Japanese pop culture generally when I was around 13 or 14. I was into video games and a little bit of anime and J-pop, um, stuff like that. Um, and then I was also into food. So I, I was watching Food Network, like kind of all night long. <laughs> I would watch people like Martin Yan and Ming Tsai and Jada De Laurentiis and Rachel Ray. Probably, I don't know if any of these names even mean anything, but but to me, they were they were huge. Um, and I would kind of like, that was my primetime TV. I would watch Food Network and, and this show Iron Chef came on when I was 14 or something. Um, and it was a Japanese cooking competition show and it just sort of blew my mind. Um, and I thought that looks amazing all the things that these chefs were doing the theatricality of it um i got really hooked and i thought yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna there's something here i'm gonna i'm gonna look into this japanese food stuff 
And I started off um, just sort of like trying whatever I could in around Milwaukee, where near where I grew up, um, which is fairly limited, but there were a few good restaurants. Um, and I wanted to go to L.A. specifically. One of the reasons, um, anyway, was because I knew there was more Japanese food and culture there um, that I could really sort of sink my teeth into. I didn't. I went to study Japanese language. Um, I actually, at that point, wanted to design video games <laughs> as a career. That's what I thought I'd end up doing. Um, but I took a few Japanese history classes, and um, at some point realized, oh, I can actually, I can actually study food. Uh, which is what I'm really interested in, um, and it kind of just went from there. And in, in I had a really great uh, mentor in, in at Occidental named Morgan Patelka, who sort of um, took me under his wing and and uh, put me up for research grants and stuff like that, uh, and encouraged me to to pursue food like in academia, which was not really a thing back then. What do you mean back um, then? There wasn't I mean, it's that... still not. I, you're the oh. only person I've ever met who, who's. <laughs> kind of interesting. I'll tell you what, there's a lot more written now, like scholarly, in the scholarly world than there was yeah, back yeah. then. Like you really had to dig, <laughs> which was, that was what, 20 years ago, 20, God, it makes me feel old, but yeah, about 20 years ago. Anyway, in, in 2005, um, he and my Japanese language uh, professor, Motoko Ozaki, put me up for a research grant. Um, and I said, I want to go study the phenomenon of local noodle cultures in Japan and where those loyalties come from. But when I got there, I some of my research sites, uh, or one of them mainly, the um, Shin Yokohama Ramen Museum, which is actually more of like a food court than a museum. Um, I found that and then I wound up finding all these other local food museums around the country and realized, oh, there's uh, like this is the thing. This is this regionality, this local pride all these ingredients and these foods and these dishes from all over the country that people um, that they identify with in, in their area, that's the thing. And, and that has, for me, sort of continued to be the thing about Japanese food that keeps it sort of perennially exciting and interesting. And, and uh, you know, there's always something new yeah. to learn in that regard. I mean, what an amazing journey from that 14-year-old nerdy youtube geek you know just completely immersing yourself in something that's what happens with the misspent youth honestly it's so funny because um like because i i met my wife in japan too and i wound up living in london because she's english and and that's how we, yeah. I, I wound up here and i think if i hadn't been watching that particular tv show at that particular time like it was literally life-changing it's so strange and silly to think of it that way but it's true so like it it TV matters. It matters what what you watch and what your kids watch. I, they, I'm always looking for those kind of those moments where the mind is blown. It's like, I, I always refer yeah. to it as the sort of the Wizard of Oz moment where life suddenly becomes Technicolor and yes. your life is never the same again. And what yeah. happens very often with people is they become completely obsessed, immersed in this other culture as a result. It's like you can't go back from the Technicolor. Life will never be the same again. No. Was that what happened with you? I mean, you know, Japan seems a very sort of a, a very alien culture still. It's like you go on to the other side and, and you're a spokesperson for it. You're a translator of much of its culture. Hmm. But you can't ever kind of come back from it, can you? I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. Um, and, you know, as for it being alien, I think it depends on what your expectations are. And I think that um, if you go to Japan... 
um, thinking that it will be alien, that it probably will present that way. But if you think of it as, if you find the familiar things, and there is a lot of that, then it starts to feel quite, I think, um, it, I know a lot of foreigners who, who have lived, moved to Japan kind of not knowing much about it and wound up feeling quite at home there. There's a lot to sort of fall in love with and a lot to Me sort too. of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you have to cross over. You have to speak the language. You have to yeah, kind of really absolutely. be in it. It, you know, it is a very stable culture. It is very cohesive. You have to make that leap into it. You can't sort of just pick and choose. You <laughs> probably sit at the noodle bars, but you'll, well, you won't have experienced it. I presume. I don't know. I've it, never been to Japan. It's kind of funny you say that, actually, because I have met um, foreigners, non-Japanese people who live in Tokyo in particular. And in Tokyo, and to a lesser extent, or well, actually to the same extent in other sort of big cities in particular in Japan, you can kind of cocoon yourself in this sort of foreigner world and not really experience the culture. Um, That is possible. And I remember going to this restaurant with a friend of mine in Tokyo in this part of town where it seemed like everybody was speaking English and at the restaurant, all the menu, like the whole, the menu was in English and not Japanese. And it was kind of like this weird little enclave. <laughs> um, and on the, on the one hand, I understood it. it's like, you know, these people are living in a foreign country and they, they want these comforts of home and these comfortable spaces where they can be themselves and things like that. Um, on the other hand, like uh, people I know who have lived in Tokyo, they kind of never leave Tokyo. And it's, it's a shame in a way. Like I get it on the one hand, but on the other hand, yeah, I think you do if you want it, to, it's not just Japan. If you want to live anywhere abroad outside of your home country if you want to sort of get to know that place you've got to get to know it. you've got to get get out yeah. and get around and meet people and uh and, no of course yeah. but, but you know the japanese actually you know I, my husband lived there for three years ah. and was very much one of the gaijin right you know, yeah. he, he, <laughs> you know you have a word for the outsider oh, yes. you never yeah. you have to sort of accept that in a way i mean mm, sure you know to go from japan with your british wife to London. Yeah. I mean, that feels like a real leap to me. So you've gone from <laughs> Wisconsin was. to LA to Japan to, to <laughs> London. But what I love about the fact is that, you know, when you came to London, it was 2008. It was when London was really so completely kind of cool. Yeah. Food had really sort of become a thing. It was yeah. still very sort of surface stuff. You right. know, people playing with food, really not having an embedded food culture, certainly like Japan does. Mm. But you kind of fell right into that with the craft beer world <laughs> and Japanese food was still that same sort of shtick wasn't it? it was cool it was new yeah. Japanese in Brixton which is what you did was was all that sort of fashion stuff did it feel that you were kind of playing with the coolness of it yeah I mean so when I first came here my first impressions were that first of all the food wasn't as bad as everybody said it was <laughs> and i think it, you know in london exactly you're about london. <laughs> right um like I, I i found a lot to love with with british food and i also loved ale and pubs like i i i was unemployed for a while my first year here um i wasn't i didn't have a visa so i was it was hard to find work um and i spent my days kind of mooching around old victorian pubs basically um and there is that like really kind of deep culture, um, but in London, like there's more in terms of sort of food pop culture, if that makes sense. Like you say, fashion, yeah, totally. yeah. Um, and and you, you know these trends. Like you know, I've lived here what 14 years now or something like that, and I've seen so many come and go. Um, and Japanese food, to some extent, has been one of them. But what's been interesting about Japanese food is that it's it's kind of stuck. 
and it's developed. And I think that's true of a lot of actually cuisines um, that we've that have sort of cropped up in London um, or across the UK. But I think you know when I first came here, um, and it still is this way to some extent. There was this impression of Japanese food as being a certain way, like very refined very sort of delicate and beautiful and light and healthy, all those kinds of things. And I had just come from a part of Japan that was famous for like braised pork belly and, and fried chicken. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. Like, okay, yes, it is these things, but also like you're selling it short. You're selling yourself short. If, if you have these kind of blinders on the Japanese food is all sushi, kaiseki, all these kind of delicate, beautiful things, um, because it can be quite rough and rustic and, and hearty and, and delicious. Um, so like I, I, as soon as I got here almost, and I, I started to understand like what the perception of Japanese food was, I, I almost made it like a crusade, um, of mine to sort of like, to, you know, get people uh, thinking in a more complicated way about Japanese food, yeah. get, get to understand different angles of it. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I think that uh, now we're at a point where we've had a big ramen trend and udon and, and katsu curry and all these other kinds of like much more sort of hearty, rustic kind of Japanese comfort food dishes that have been um, uh, become popular. And I think that now we're at a point where Japanese food is, much better understood than it was, you know, just 10 years ago. Well, and largely thanks to, you know, things like the kitchen cabinet with you tell it, taking as much more <laughs> deeply into Japanese food culture. You know, it's it's no longer the sort of conveyor belt, moshi moshi, right. you know, go sushi, <laughs> that kind of thing, which was brought over by Brits. You know, right, right, yeah, yeah. It was set up by Brits who'd been to Japan, thought, what a great idea, of and course. brought it back. <laughs> um, you know, people, I mean, I live in Brighton where Bincho Yakitori was a fantastic yes, great place. Japanese restaurant. Yeah. But again, it's brought over by Dave the Brit, right, right, right. who saw something in, t- in the back street of Tokyo and thought, right, we'll do that. So he does that wonderful braised belly pork that you're talking about, right. which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. But it's a bit sort of secret, you know, you can't get in there. Right. Start. It's always booked out. <laughs> I tried last time I was in Brighton. Brighton. Yeah. yeah, you try getting into Bincho Yakitori, impossible. Um, but yeah, so it is about penetrating it a, a little bit by taking people by the hand, which is kind of what you do, mm. and certainly in all your books. Um, let's start talking about some of the food moments in, in Bowls and Bento, sure. the latest one. In your preface, you talk about kombini. Yes. You des- describe the book as a sort of a... A, a convenience of itself. Tell us about the convenience store that is a world of its own. Uh, I mean, a, a convenience is a magical place. It's it's hard to sort of un. It's hard to oversell it. Uh, although I, I I feel like I frequently do. It, it, look, it's 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 um. It, it's a convenience store. The Japanese convenience stores. There are many uh, national chains and a few local chains and a, and a few sort of mom and pop operations as well um, that could be called conveni. Um And they are to some degree what you'd expect from a convenience store. They have cold food. They have hot food. They have um, you know chilled drinks. You can get a cup of coffee there. Um, they have an ATM. All that stuff. And, and sort of on paper, they're nothing special, but. They are special, <laughs> um, and that's mainly to do with the sort of quality and variety of what they offer. Um, the food is always fresh, the food is always tasty, and there's, like I said, a, an enormous variety. And and what I've also come to realize in traveling around Japan is that the food in Kamini is actually 
regionally specific. They'll have different things in a 7-Eleven in Fukuoka than they do in Hokkaido um, based on local tastes, basically. Um, and the reason that the food is fresh, you know, I, I don't quite understand the whole Kombini um, ecosystem, but I know that they have a really sophisticated logistics uh, structure, basically, where they have small warehouses around cities that they can uh, make fresh food throughout the day and then deliver quickly to the branches. So you don't have a sandwich that's been sitting there for days. You have a sandwich that's been sitting there for sort of hours, max, because as soon as the sandwich is gone, they can call up the local 7-Eleven Depot or the Lawson or Family Mart or whatever and say, hey, we need more egg sandwiches, we need more tuna onigiri, and then in, a, in an hour or two it'll be there. So it's, it's constantly being refle- refreshed and replenished um, and they've you know got great baked goods and uh, iced tea and alcohol and uh, you could buy cans of oxygen there if you're feeling a bit tired and uh, you can you can buy uh, you could pay for your uh, plane tickets there credit cards are a bit weird in Japan I mean why would you ever leave why would you the hot fried chicken good fried chicken last time I was uh, not this last time but a couple a few years ago when I was in Japan. Um, I didn't know they did this. I, I I saw that they actually have deep fryers behind the counter in the convenience store. I thought the fried chicken was sort of ovened, put in an oven and reheated or something. But no, it's fried fresh, <laughs> which is like, okay, no wonder it's so good. Um, they're just a cut above. And, and the, the sort of shameful or sad thing, <laughs> I won't say it's sad, um, but the thing about when I go to Japan, there's obviously all this amazing food to try, these great experiences to have. But I still go back to the kombini, you know, for a, a, whatever, a, a katsu sando or, or a mentaiko origiri or a bento or whatever, um, yeah. just because it's there. And I know it's going to be good. And for me, it's like comfort food. I, I love yeah. – I, I, I spend way too much time and money in kombini whenever <laughs> when I go to Japan. <laughs> and And even when you're not there, you say you listen to – in-store advertising jingles on YouTube, <laughs> door chime music, uh, and have a little cry. I don't really cry. Maybe I've cried once, but I've uh, I've got this kind of this. These were the soundtracks to my life, basically, when I lived in Japan. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. You you describe the book as as a kombini. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, the whole idea was that you can uh, start to treat your home, your home kitchen, your fridge as its own little kombini. Keep it stocked up with fresh, delicious uh, food, meals or side dishes that can, you can then have cold or room temperature in a bento or reheated. Uh, and there's a precedent for this in Japanese food culture called skuriyoki okazu, which means basically make make ahead side dishes, make ahead dishes. Um, that is sort of the crux of having delicious Japanese food, breakfast, lunch and dinner every day if you want it. And who doesn't? <laughs> so you've got lots of different ideas and lots of fantastic recipes, but there are lots of little sort of sides and pickles and bits and soups and, and easy ways in. Uh, but basically, a, a Japanese meal can be many things, um, but a great place to start is with uh, this very traditional foundation of rice, pickles and miso soup. Um, the, the pickles... That that sounds kind of complicated, I think, to a lot of people. Like, that sounds like three things you have to make already. But the pickles can be pre-made, obviously. They can be shop-bought. The miso soup, also, you can make your own miso soup mix or buy it. There's absolutely no shame in that. Um, and then the rice, very easy, 20-minute job in a saucepan or a rice cooker. Um, and in those 20 minutes, you can make something else very simple, like, you know, chicken karage or grilled mackerel or salmon or another veg dish or something like that, a salad. 
so like rice pickles miso soup, that's sort of, I think, how you can uh, get your head around sort of a Japanese meal structure. And then what you put with those is very open and kind of you can cook whatever to suit your mood or whatever you have in the fridge. Take us to your first food moment, Tim. This is the potato salad sandwich, which is, yes. comes from the kombini. Why did you choose this one? Because a potato salad sandwich, uh, I think, embodies so much of what makes a kombini great. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of, um, it's emblematic also in the sense that it's, it's kind of bland. Um, it's not bland like, oh, this tastes of absolutely nothing. But there's nothing particularly big in terms of flavor or challenging or surprising. It's just sort of like this nice square or rectangle rather of, of or triangles actually usually uh, of off-white softness. <laughs> um, uh, it's creamy and the bread is squishy and it's just a perfect sort of mouthful when you need something that will sustain you and not, um, not, not challenge you in any way. Something that you know is going to be good, something that you know is going to be filling. Um, and, you know, it's carb. And this is yes, from your kombini. you'll get these in kombini. You'll get them at specialist uh, bakeries and sandwich shops as well. Um, but they're, they're great because the thing is, I think it, it would be possible. Um, I'm sure people have had this experience where they go to Japan, they go to a kombini and they buy a sandwich and they think it's nothing special. But for me, that's kind of the point. Like they're good and not much more than that. They are what you need. They are uh, satisfying and delicious, um, but they're not they're not pushing any boundaries or buttons in terms of flavor necessarily some of them maybe could do but um yeah the potato salad sandwich it's it's so i I always gravitate towards that one especially sort of when i'm feeling a bit like tired or hungover because you need that that it's like a pillow it's something you can sort of just sink into and, and and relax it relies on japanese potato salad which i think is the best in the world because it's it's sort of half mashed. The potatoes are very, very, very broken up and stirred through the mayonnaise, and it gives them a lightness and a softness and a kind of silkiness. Um, and that's sort of the crux of that sandwich as well. And if you can make the sandwich, then obviously you can make the potato salad, and that's a fantastic side dish to have in your repertoire. I've, I've got an episode of Right to Food uh, podcast, which is the podcast I do for the Food mm. Foundation out uh, this week, which is all about eating out of home. Yeah. You know, millions and millions and millions of Brits eat out of home all the time. Can they get a sandwich that is delicious, <laughs> affordable mm. and healthy? Yeah. You know, that's what we need. So what you're talking about yeah. is the perfect food system, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, there have been times that I've come back from Japan and I thought, why can't, why don't we do this here? Why don't we set up a kombini and, and do it properly and get investment and have these this distribution model i think i think the bottom line is it's kind of just like too much work for people um to get behind i think there's a lot of moving parts in a kombini kind of system for a sandwich like <laughs> i'm not sure you could convince british people or investors to say like okay we need to have all these systems in place so that we can get somebody in a potato salad sandwich within two hours <laughs> but, it, but, but it's not that is it that i mean you said that when you walk into a kombini all of life is yeah there. don't get me wrong the kombini is full of incredibly highly processed food but what's absolutely true about it is that there's something there's something very democratic about a kombini this idea that like anybody with a bit of pocket change should be able to have some decent fresh food i think that is yeah. that's uh, a, a goal worth striving to culturally <laughs> yeah 
Bring yeah, it over, Tim. I'll bring try. it over. Join the Yosushi and Moshi Moshi <laughs> and all the rest of them and bring it over. Um, we can learn a lot from mm. the Japanese. Um, Japanese food does like to be challenging, though. I'm thinking of fugu, the, the blowfish <laughs> that you can only eat if you, you know, in a certain particular way. And your second food moment is natto which, again, is one of these challenging foods. Tell us about that one. Yeah, natto's a... I wanted to talk about natto because I realized um, it's challenging because its reputation is that it's challenging. Because even in Japan, Japanese people will say, if you start talking about food, and you know, obviously for me, that is the first thing I always talk about, <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, what kind of Japanese food I like and stuff like that, somebody will often ask, you know, do you like natto? And that's almost like a little litmus test to see, like, okay, how much do you like Japanese food? Um, it's basically like fermented soybeans, whatever. A sticky sliminess, almost. Um, if you've ever eaten okra mm, and, and mm. noticed the kind of sliminess inside, it's, it's like that, basically. I first had it in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles, where some friends of mine and I went to this sushi shop that had a deal on Mondays where every piece of either salmon or natto sushi was some impossibly low price, like 90 cents or something. And, you know, poor students, yeah. cheap sushi. Of course we're going to go there. And, you know, I don't remember if we ordered like a sort of set or if we just kind of got sick of eating the salmon or whatever it was. But at some point we ordered the natto and we tried it. And it was like, okay, what's this sticky, stringy stuff? Um, but it was it was good. It is kind of, for me, it's about that texture, um, which I still think is a, a little bit... <laughs> Weird, and if I have sort of too much of it in one mouthful, it'll make me. Uh, I'm not uh, a big fan. <laughs> I've never, but, I've never uh, had somebody choose a food moment from their entire book that they they end up by saying it's really quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like I mean, sell it to us, Tim. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing about natto. It does taste. It's really good. It's great on hot rice. Um, and if you're not a huge fan of the texture, like I'm not, you can sort of interrupt that texture with crunchy, crispy bits. So in the book, I suggest yeah. things like uh, the crispy fried onions that you put on a uh, Danish hot dog um, or bits of chopped up kimchi. They say natto is very, very healthy. It's good for your gut and it's good for your brain and stuff like that. And one of my friends in Japan told me this. Uh, and she said, you know, I'm eating natto every every morning and I feel great. Um, and I said, okay, maybe I'll give that a go. Except for whatever reason, I decided to eat it at night because I think I wasn't much of a breakfast person. So I'd eat natto before I went to bed. And sure enough, I, f I woke up feeling really good, but I had very weird dreams. Um, and I wonder if it's sort of the same phenomenon as like the cheese dreams cheese. where you get, yeah. I don't know, yeah. B vitamins Who or knows? something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not so good dreams, good taste. Funny texture, that's all. Really quite nice. <laughs> uh, and your third food moment, you use the word daunting in the list of ingredients with the grilled vegetable salad with ah. Genghis Khan dressing. Why is it daunting? Well, the uh, so Genghis Khan is a specialty from Hokkaido Prefecture, uh, which is essentially like grilled lamb and vegetables with a delicious tangy dip uh, so you it's this great diy dish where you have a barbecue at your table you grill all the veg and then you take them hot fresh off the grill into the sauce and into your mouth and wash it down with stein after sign of delicious japanese beer um uh, the reason that it's daunting is because the dressing like to make this delicious tangy dressing it's one of these things that like is sort of deceptively complex it has a lot of ingredients in it you know it's got grated ginger and garlic and beer and soy sauce and vinegar and the sort of list goes on and that for me actually is quite antithetical to what i generally like about japanese cooking which that it's 
which is that it's it's not that usually. It's it's usually quite simple. In fact, sometimes it's hard to write Japanese recipes because certain dishes are like mackerel, salt, grated radish, and like that's it. <laughs> it's like okay, are you try to put that in a cookbook. Um, but yeah, the the Genghis Khan uh, dip, the dressing, the sauce is complicated. But then again, you, you do just kind of bung it all in a food processor and, and blitz it up. So you, you have to just sort of get out your ingredients and your measuring spoons um, and, and ignore the fact that the ingredients list is like a good three or four inches on the page. <laughs> it's a wow dish. You've got to have a wow dish, right. haven't you? Because you are a master chef champion. I mean, that's where you kind of, you know, you came to Britain in, in 2008. By 2011, you were a master chef champion. <laughs> I mean, that's extraordinary, really, isn't it? And one of the dishes that in your fourth food moment was um, not very Japanese at all. One of the things that I love about Japanese food is that it doesn't compromise. It It is very sort of self-contained. Most most of it anyway mm. you did the fusion back in 2011 and this is the soba mange to and tarragon salad yeah with carrot miso dressing and tarragon's not, not what you'd expect to find in japanese salads no uh, the thing is when i so i made this dish or, or some, something very close to it when i was auditioning for master chef or not auditioning it was somewhere sort of halfway through the interview process where they wanted me to bring in some food um and basically, I made a I made a bento. I made a, a selection of small Japanese dishes, and I think I had some sushi and a few little salads and pickles and stuff like that. Um, and I made this soba noodle salad. But basically, what I was doing was I was just cooking how I had always been cooking, which was sort of mostly Japanese, a little bit creative, a little bit sort of non-traditional but the main thing was i was just sort of using what i could get my hands on so like the sushi in that bento used smoked mackerel which you wouldn't really get uh, i don't think maybe ever in japan um maybe some places would serve you a smoked mackerel sushi but like that's just because you know that's what they had at sainsbury's or whatever and it, it tastes great on the vinegared rice so why not um good with some ponzu Sometimes when I'm doing recipes for the books or, or when I was at the restaurant, I'll think, is this too far beyond the sort of boundaries of, of what counts as Japanese food? And then I go to Japan and I look around and I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> there are There's so much sort of creativity and experimentation and dynamism um, in the food there. There's this openness in, in Japanese food and Japanese culture generally, an openness to sort of new ideas and to trying things and and that's tied to this idea of also like always trying to improve your product and, and test the market and see sort of what people will respond to. Don't be afraid to put tarragon in your Japanese food. It's yeah. obviously not going to be traditional or something that they would have had there centuries ago necessarily. But also it's, it's kind of in keeping with a certain spirit of Japanese cuisine, which is that it, it might be delicious and then could become something big. There's this image of Japanese food as being kind of monolithic, culturally speaking, and going back centuries sort of unchanged. And for me, it's almost the complete opposite. It's always in flux. You're a cultural commentator on Japanese food. You know, you're an expert. You're somebody who goes on the radio on Radio 4, um, which still has so little food on it. <laughs> Not enough, yeah. That. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cooking the Books was turned down from Radio oh. just want everyone to write in and complain about that. <laughs> anyway, um, but what's interesting is that, you know, since you've been that cultural commentator, we've watched this whole argument about cultural appropriation kind of take off and burn a lot of people you're the one standing with the kind of the you know the the clipboard saying this is what japanese food is about in a very sort of 
you know, you're on the BBC. Mm. How did you manage to wade your way through those waters? I I don't know. <laughs> I it's something I'm I'm very mindful of and have always been mindful of, but especially since it's become such a hot topic in the past few years. Mm. Um, I think the main thing is I try to be respectful. I do my homework, um, and whatever I express about Japanese food, I want to be able to back it up with research and with an understanding. Doesn't mean I always get it right, um, but I think that there is, uh, and you know, this is something that I've been studying for a long time. So, and I think that does count. I think that if I kind of come in a few years ago and just said, "Hey, I'm going to start doing Japanese food," I would be more criticized, and rightly so. <laughs>、um, but I will say this: it bothers me that there's not enough of a platform or platforms for other voices in Japanese food. Japanese cooks, Japanese food educators,、um, food writers, things like that. Because uh, there are,、um, well, I shouldn't say that, but you know, there there is the kitchen cabinet. That's sort of a plum gig for me.、Um, but I feel like, and and then there's TV as well. But I, I don't really do TV. But I'd like to see like Japanese cooks on TV. I'd like to see sort of. More coverage in the newspapers and recipe columns written、yeah. by Japanese people.、Um, I think that it's it's okay for me to sort of be out there writing these books and on the radio and, and talking about Japanese food, but I can't be the only one. And I want people to know that because I realized a little while ago, people might have one of my books, like probably Japanesey in particular, which is the biggest seller, and that might be the only book they have on Japanese food. And On the one hand, that's very nice and flattering, and、I'm, I've got a lot of gratitude for that. On the other hand, I wish they would buy more books <laughs> by other authors.、Um, I wish they would probably start with a different book, something like Shizuo Tsuji's Japanese Cooking: A Simple Art. The thing I kind of mainly want people to understand about Japanese food is that、uh, it is big and vast and diverse and complex, and no one author, least of all me, can can really capture or express that.、Um, So I've I've started to put in my books like don't let this be your only book or your last book on Japanese food. Go read more. Go to the country, and, and just keep learning. I, I think I, I recognize that I'm in a very privileged position to be doing this.、Um, what I do, talking about Japanese food, writing about it professionally. The best I can do is to sort of use that position to promote other sources of Japanese culture. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com and follow me on Instagram. I'm at foodjillysmith. I'll see you next week. Bye.